Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for February 4th, 2018. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always, and we'll skip over a little bit, Tim Shiflett. How you doing, Tim? Good evening, sir. Yes, and you say evening, but if you're listening to this live, you know this. We're five hours early because it is Super Bowl mm-hmm. Sunday. Um, and mm-hmm. it's just 2 o'clock. Uh, Catherine mm-hmm. gave us the thumbs up about an hour and a half ago, so I bet she'll call in here in a second, and we'll get her on here. But uh, we're on a little early, and uh, still got a good show planned. And if you listen to the podcast, which most people do, you ain't got the difference. Tonight or today, we're really excited. Uh, Ken Rudin, who uh, does the political junkie on uh, on. Radio stations, he does all things are political, or all things are politics as a podcast. He's been on NPR, um, Hotwire, or Hotline. He was the um, editor for that. We're going to talk to Ken, one, about his rich political bio. We're going to talk about some political issues of the day. And we're also going to ask him a little bit about his extensive political button collection here in about 20 minutes. Um, But until then, uh, Tim and I will talk about some political issues of the day we have planned. We're not quite as excited about the Super Bowl, so I think uh, as we were last year. So I think we'll be able to focus a little better on politics. Um, and let's start off with the the big story, Tim. The memo, the big four-page memo. And, and of course, the running joke is when it's something you know, government printing. It, it's way too many pages. Nobody can ever get through it. It's all so complicated. Tim, I would think most government documents, the cliff notes couldn't begin to be covered in four pages, um, but I really don't think it's about the content. It's about what you can say about the content. Um, what's your take on the Nunez uh, memo? Well, I, I tried to devour everything uh, that's publicly available on it, including the memo itself. As you mentioned, it was four pages, and I, I read it, and, and to me it looked just like a political document purpose is to um, call into question in the minds of the public uh, whether or not this investigation of the president is fair or not, and if there's some huge amount of bias at with our intelligence and top police services and of course uh it's predicated on which is not actually factual that everything came from the dossier that's that's what they keep wanting to talk about is the steel dossier uh that's what the echo chamber that agrees with them is talking about um and they're, of course, saying as a result, this thing shouldn't even be going on. Uh, some have gone so far as to say that those that have been indicted should be uh, pardoned, uh, that this is a, you know, they, they've reversed and said what is being said about the investigation itself, only in reverse. Uh, no, that's not the the biggest scandal since Watergate, this is, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I do believe that Trump is in the process of attempting to shut it all down. Um, I think he would like to clean house in the leadership levels of the entire Justice Department, especially the FBI, and he'd like to replace them with people who are personally loyal to him. Uh, the dust, uh, the uh, memo looks like it cherry-picked facts, as some have said. Um, I do believe Speaker Ryan put Nunez up to this. Um, 
several things were not released that would have contradicted it, like, for instance, the McCabe, the transcript of the McCabe testimony, uh, or like the Democrats' uh, memo. So um, I, I think we'll now see that the Republicans will really ramp it up to stop this investigation. They'll work with Trump to do it. And uh, wow, <laughs> it's it's I, I've I've just I've never seen anything like this. It, it, it's like two alternative universes are existing side by side. I believe Trump. That's what he wants to muddy the waters, of course. So yeah, I, there there's we are. so many institutions done with this. Um, there's so much here that you that you went over. One thing I want to ask you: you said. You thought Paul Ryan put him up, uh, Devin Nunes, up to this. Mm-hmm. Do you not think Devin Nunes is kind of a lackey as it is? More for Donald Trump, because that's my thought. He wouldn't need yeah. anybody to put him up to this because he seems motivated yeah, but, to, to do Donald Trump's bidding at all costs. R- Ryan could certainly stop him from doing it at any time. I think he rather approves of it for political reasons. He's seen the same polls that we've seen. And he wants to gin up the base to get out and vote because, you know, uh, everyone by now knows that the Democratic base is definitely ginned up to vote. And and so I think, you know, going back to what I said at the beginning, that this is a political document. And, yes, I think Nunez is right in – Trump's pocket. We we saw that last year with that nonsense that they pulled with the cloak and dagger stuff at the White House. So uh, he's he's a real card. That guy is. It, it would do very well for us to win the House back and get rid of him as the chairman of that committee. That that would solve a lot of difficulties right there. Yes, and uh, he's from California. As we know, there's going to be a mm-hmm. lot of California districts in play because California has become so Democratic, so blue. Is there any chance, and do you know where he um, represents? Uh, he, any his, chance district, that he would lose? his district is not in play at all. He won, he won last time out. It's away from the coast. He won last time out uh, all with two-thirds of the vote, and that was against a pretty well-funded opponent. He he even in a huge way year the there's no way we're going to beat him. The best thing we can do is replace him as chair. You know that committee always acted in a nonpartisan manner. The committees like that should they certainly don't attack our intelligence services. They don't attack the Federal Bureau of Investigation. This is horrible what's going on. And, and and now that committee, their usefulness is just gone. And again, I believe Trump is delighted with that because uh, that's one less committee that'll be investigating him and and the Russia stuff. Uh, and it plays to yeah, the base, David. You know. And so he, David Nunez, I guess would say he's from New California. If you've seen the stories on right. that, we're yeah, not to that right. at all yet. But um, so to me, this is the take I have on this thing. They wrote this memo not even so much to go to everyone or to go for the – so that certain congressmen or senators can go out and tell their base this. They wrote this so it could become the narrative for Fox News in particular. There's probably some other media outlets, but Fox News by and large is the uh, the big – machine of right-wing media and so mm-hmm. therefore they put this, this out and the fox and friends host hannity carlson all these characters can purport this as the truth and then their base will believe this because they watch fox news what? with the exclusion mm-hmm. of all other media probably of reading other media and that's going to be the narrative for somewhere between 35 and 40 percent of the country for sure you yeah, you know, you, Fox News motivated. You, you, you. Funny, you should mention that. But there's a lot of talk going around that Sean Hannity himself has advised Trump on this memo, has pressured, 
you know, Trump to go along with it and this and that and the other. And there's also a lot of talk that the White House staff actually helped to uh, put this memo together. They certainly had some input into it. So let's make a memo uh, from us that defends us that, you know, uh, it's all us, 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 us. Uh, this is no independent source here. <laughs> I mean, this, this is an inside job, and yeah, I think Hannity was probably in on it uh, because of the wording he used to deny it. I never heard the word no. He was shocked, I'm telling you, shocked that anyone would even suggest that. So yeah, I think he was in on it. It's well known that Trump talks to him all the time. So, you know. Uh, the thing is, will they get away with it? I, they'll get away with it with their base. I heard a guy talking. I had to work yesterday. I heard a guy talking at work, and he was saying the lines that they want to hear. They ought to just shut this Russia thing down, he said, so we can get on with running the country. That's what they want people to to say, and that's you know that's that's what they want people to believe. So. Might work. Yeah, it's th- this kind of goes along with the pattern of you know Trump makes uh, his base distrust the media, um, and now and of course mistrust the other side of the political aisle. Now it's mistrust the Justice Department. Apparently, the person he picked for the FBI, there's been a lot. They've questioned him. You know, did he vote for Donald Trump? Which of course was secret ballot and. What, you know which side of the aisle he hails from shouldn't be important because his wife ran as a, um, for Virginia either delegate or senator, state senator, as a Democrat, and so they're questioning right. his political loyalties. And this is the guy that Donald Trump picked to replace James Comey because I mean you know people are thinking, well, is he going to replace this guy? I mean, how far does this go to where he doesn't trust anybody that's Qualified in a neutral, nonpartisan sense. I have an answer for that. It'll go as far Trump wants it to go, at least this year, and I'm going to tell you why. I firmly believe that under no circumstances, no circumstances at all, will this Republican House uh, take up the issue of the impeachment of this president. Therefore, There is no check, no balance to stop this president from basically doing anything he wishes to do. And if he feels that, you know, it's time to fire these guys, well, then he's going to fire. And I don't think anything will stop him. Who will stop him? His whole legal staff at the White House, the whole council's office had to threaten to resign last year to keep him from firing Mueller two weeks into this investigation. I don't even think they'd stop him after that. Uh, I don't think no, nobody's going to stop him. I believe he'll do anything the he mem- wants to do. Yeah, the, the memo will be the justification, and he'll, he'll use that. Now, let's get into right. this. Uh, the, the, apparently, the, the, the Democrats in Congress wrote their own memo, which refutes many of the points, but it's not being released. So right. apparently, the majority has the ability to let things be released or sequester things. Right. And, and right. something seems it, very un-American about this. If you have the majority, you can control the speech right. because writing right. a memo is – Seems somewhat First Amendment protected. When it's a memo that that comes from a committee like this, the committee votes on it, and uh, you know they vote straight down party lines, and the Republicans control every committee in the House because they're in the majority. So that's the way it's going to go. There's nothing. Only. The only thing we can do about this now, I firmly believe, is vote. We have got to get out there, and we have got to win an election, man. I I'm, I know it's great that we're winning special elections here and there and the other place. We have got to win those midterms. We have got to take over some part of the government. 
the House, the Senate, we have got to have something to stop them. Something. Yes, I think I told you done? the other night uh, we're we're talking. There's going to be two trials on this thing, and one's going to be in November 2018, and another one's going to be November 2020, if nothing else. Uh, those are going to be the two trials, uh, if nothing else comes out of it, and, and how the American because people feel about things. I'll agree halfway. I'll agree halfway because of the fathomable carnage that this man could turn loose on this country and already is in the process of doing. Uh, November 2018 has got to be our sole focus. November 2020 is not going to matter if we don't win. In November of 2018. It's it's just that simple now. Look at what he's done in a year. Do you realize who would have ever thought that the party of law and order would be turning on our top law enforcement agency in the country, or turning on the CIA, or turning uh, – I mean, they, they, they've always spoken critically of the news media. Now they are – openly trying to destroy the credibility of the new of the free news media in this country they are attacking all yep. of our institutions they, i mean the country's in danger and what is amazing though is many of the uh, things like the new york times subscriptions are up um, I, I believe viewership on some of the other cable networks besides Fox mm-hmm. are up. And so they actually help um, the bottom line, which in a business economy, that that, that means they're going to get more uh, viewership, readership, more revenue to run what they do. So inadvertently, they've helped them. We probably don't have time to really finish into this, but you talk about 2018, so that's not a bad segue into finishing our discussion. We kind of talked about all the places. <clears throat> that were Republican pickup, Democratic loss, or defense uh, seats, we didn't get to the other side. So let's kind of start off. We had talked about Tennessee pretty well with John Rowley, but let's talk about one of the other more intriguing ones, and that is Texas. Ted Cruz is up. Uh, Ted Cruz, um, he won the election last time, but he's never really been personally popular with a lot of folks, um, even in his own party. And Amazingly, there may be more than one contender, but Beto O'Rourke, who's a congressman from the El Paso area, has decided to you know vacate that seat, run against him for Senate. And now twice, in two different financial disclosures, he has outraised Ted Cruz. Now, he's seen as somebody a little bit to the left of the average Texan, but he is a congressman. He has some Latino roots, and he obviously can raise some money. Um, can anyone or can Beto O'Rourke defeat Ted Cruz, in your opinion, Tim? Uh, well, it's gonna, uh, of course, it's got, we, we're going to have to operate on the theory that it's a wave to do it. I do know the demographics in Texas are changing. I don't know how rapidly they are changing. I do not know how the expanding Hispanic vote would uh, view this race with one of their own in the seat. Um, six months ago, I guess, it, it was it would have been hard to imagine uh, Ted Cruz being in any trouble at all. But after that stunner, just right across the state line over here, People are suddenly starting to look around at some other states that have been red for a long time, and maybe they're starting to be in play now. Uh, Texas is one such place. Um, it, you, you know, the, the the house races is another thing in Texas uh, with you know, the GOP, I believe, holding like, what, 25 of the 36 seats. But look at the the good results for Democrats in life. You know, the big win in Virginia, that shocking win in Alabama, sweep in New Jersey, uh, winning just 
races that they shouldn't win, like like that little state that we were talking about up there in Wisconsin a couple of weeks ago, that shifted in a huge way. I think Ted Cruz is going to have a race on his hands. I would put Texas in. I think there's two races the Democrats really have a great chance in. And then I would put Texas in with Tennessee, maybe right behind it. I would rate Texas as our fourth best pickup opportunity. What do you think? Yes, and I think I think that may be accurate, but that's probably because more of Phil Bredesen being the Democratic nominee. Well, let's tra- let's yes. change gears. We are really excited to have a first-time guest, but really a top-shelf guest to the Kudzu Vine. Want to welcome in for the first time, Mr. Ken Rudin. Welcome, Ken. How are you? What do they always say? A, a first-time caller, a long-time listener? Is that what they say? There we go. Yes, <laughs> and if you've been a long-time listener of ours, we are quite honored. Um, but then I bet a lot of our listeners are going to know about you and know about some of your background. But just for those that don't, let's just start off. Kind of tell us uh, your political journey. Well, um, I, I grew up – no, we don't have to do, go, go that, back that far. But I started with ABC News in New York in 1983 as a researcher, and then I was transferred to Washington in 1986 as the deputy political director at ABC News uh, under Hal Bruno. So I was at ABC News for eight years. Then I was the, uh, the managing editor of The Hotline, which is a, a political newsletter. And I'm sorry. So after I left ABC News, I went straight to uh, NPR, where I became the political editor. I left for a brief time of three years to become the managing editor of The Hotline, which is a daily political newsletter. I was succeeded by some guy named Chuck Todd. I don't know whatever happened to him. But then I went back to NPR <laughs> in 98. And I left in 2013, so I spent uh, nearly 20 years as the political editor at NPR, and now I have my own podcast, KR Political Junkie, which is every which is heard every week. Yes. Well, let's go back to one of those, a hotline. I remember, uh, I guess y'all had an early political internet site. Um, you, of course, had the print version, too. And kind of, it was the blogs before they were the blogs. And get well, inside information because now it's not, not only was that. Cycle. I mean, now of course uh, there are a lot of sites, and the, the sites are much better than they used to be. But the sites are now everything. Everybody seems to aggregate uh, political information. And there's some great sources for stuff. But back then, when I joined the hotline in 1994. Uh, yeah, in 1994, I mean, basically, we would do 40 pages every day. We would take um, – uh, we would aggregate newspaper clippings and, and articles and radio shows and TV shows from around the country. And you either – we either, <laughs> this sounds so archaic, like I have to bring out my Palm Pilot to rem- remember this. But we used to send it out by fax or you could print it for 40 pages. I mean, that's how archaic it sounded. There was nothing online back then. It was always fax and, and, and hard copy. And things have changed in 1994. Actually, 1994 was best known, of course, for the Gingrich Revolution, when the Republicans took control of the Congress for the first time in 40 years. And when I was covering the House for ABC News, for the longest time, everybody felt there's no way in the world the Republicans could ever take back the House. I mean, they last won it. They last had it in 1954. They won it again in '94, 40 years later. And now people are wondering whether the Democrats could win it back, even though for the longest time we thought the Republicans would never lose it. So every time we think the political trends last forever, they can change on a dime, and certainly they can change when the political mood in the country shifts as well. Yes. Now, one more thing about the hotline. You mentioned Chuck Todd succeeded you. Um, there as editor. Did he work under you first? Well, actually, he worked briefly under me, and then he left to do some other uh, – um, it was called the American Political Network under Doug Bailey. He worked for a different publication. He left to do something else for Doug Bailey, and he came back. Actually, he came back a few years later. And then because he was such a political junkie as I am, he was very close with Tim Russert, and Tim Russert adored him. I mean, Tim Russert was one of the great, truly great 
guys in political journalism because he loved it. Even though he came from Democratic background, you know, he worked for Daniel Patrick Moynihan and, and things like that. But he loved, deeply loved politics and political history, as does, as did Chuck. And so Tim Russer took him under his wing. And when, when, when Tim tragically passed away, um, Chuck was in, I mean, I hate to say the right place at the right time, but he was the logical play, person to replace Tim as uh, on Meet the Press. Yes. Well, now let's move over to NPR where you were, I guess, got your real audio start, if you will, um, and, you know, kind of brought you where you are today. Uh, tell us about politics on NPR, because we know it's a, it's a nonpartisan or it's a government entity, although people assume nowadays, for whatever reason, it's more left-leaning uh, because people that are more left-leaning listen to it with uh, more intellectual folks. Um, but that may not always have been the case. Tell us the kind of the uh, evolution of NPR politics. Well, let me say two things. First of all, it is not a government entity. Uh, it does get about 3% of its funding from the federal government. Uh, that's through the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. But it's definitely not a government entity at all. It's not like uh, Voice of America or something like that. It's completely independent, uh, and it basically produces programs that it distributes to stations around the country. As far as left-wing, yes, I've heard that argument. I probably think, if anything, it was left-wing in the early days because it was it was more iconoclastic and it was more anti-establishment. And if you think of the establishment as being conservative, and it was, if you think, you know, when it came to being during, I guess, during the latter years of Nixon, or at least Nixon's second term, um, it was kind of, I, I, left wing is too strong of a term, but it was definitely left of center. And there are people who still think that, but, you know, it's funny, when I, all those years I was at NPR, Every day I would get letters from people or emails from people said that, that you know, we are, we are left-wing, we're left of Stalin, and then we're also right-wing, we're, we're corporate tools. So, so I always said that if you, if you think that I'm a right-wing conservative and a left-wing liberal, then I must be doing something right. But I think people see uh, – people hear what they want to hear, and if you're a, if you're a lefty, um, you'll you think that everybody's conservative. If you're a right-winger, you'll think everybody's a socialist. So – but actually, it, it, it's pretty much down the line. Do I think that more people who work there are, are vote for Democrats? Absolutely. I mean, there's no question about that. I don't see. I don't say that as criticism. I say that as a matter of fact. But if you listen to his stuff, it's. I mean, look, that's the job of a good editor. A good editor's job is to make sure that this is not left nor right, but but accurate. And that's what I always strove for in all my years at NPR. Yes, and today it's so tricky because um, if people have to have college degrees or more than a college degree to hold a job, and then because of our political demographics where people that hold a college degree are more or more likely to be much more likely than ever before to be Democratic, then a lot of institutions are going to be seen as Democratic leanings because of the educational attainment piece, and I'm sure the current NPR fits into that narrative. Well, let me just interrupt for a second. I mean, yes and no. I mean, there are, first of all, um, you don't have to have a college uh, degree to work for NPR. I mean, I'm not saying it, it doesn't help, but I, I never heard somebody say, well, you, you can't get a job there if you, if you didn't graduate from college. So I don't know if that's true. I do get the sense that those who are more – I mean, you know, this sounds like a snobbery thing, but I do get the sense that people who are more – who are better educated, more more educated – uh, uh, more advanced degrees do tend to be more liberal in their politics. But I also know that, um, I mean, I, th I think there's a, there's, a, there's a shift that it can, ch it can change. And, uh, but for the most part, I think there's, I mean, they, I remember, you know, how the, the, the conservatives would, would mock like Adlai Stevenson, you know, the two-time Democratic presidential candidate in the 1950s because he was an intellectual. And, of course, you know, the conservatives would always talk about all these intellectuals. And, and so I guess if they didn't like in intellectuals, they must have been anti-intellectual and so anti-education. But And you know that, I mean, again, the people who like Trump, the, the, the Trump supporters tend to be have less education than those who oppose him. I mean, that's just a matter of fact. It's not a, it's not a value judgment. It's just a matter of fact. Yes. Well, just one final question from me on bio, and then I'm going to let Tim ask you about some political questions today, and I may have some too. Um, your current podcast uh, that folks can hear 
current thought from Ken Rudin. Tell us about that. Well, I, so basically when I was at NPR, every week on Talk of the Nation, which is a program on NPR, which no longer exists on NPR, but I had a political junkie segment where we would spend 20 minutes a week to, or a half hour a week talking about the politics of the day. We'd have a trivia question. We'd have guests. We'd have fun. I mean, what I love, first of all, I deeply, deeply love political history. And for example, in, 19, in 1966, I started collecting campaign buttons. That's how long I've been a political junkie. And so to me, it's like, you know, a kid who collects baseball cards and suddenly finds himself playing center field for the Yankees. I mean, it just led to a career of following politics, and I've always loved it. So, so you know, so the podcast, it's a, it basically, it's a podcast and a program. In other words, there are stations around the country that pick it up as a radio program, and it's also a podcast as well. But it's for about an hour every week. You can find it on krpoliticaljunkie.com, and we talk about you know the news of the week. Every week we have a this week in political history feature where we go back you know years or even decades. Like like for example, two weeks ago we talked about the the Pueblo incident, which 50 years ago that week it was a it was a it was a, a, a spy ship a U.S. spy ship that was taken by the North Koreans in 1968. And so I spoke to a guy who um, who wrote a big book on the Pueblo and what it meant, how, how much of an embarrassment it was for the U.S. Or I'll talk to Trent Lott or Walter Mondale or people who you know who did you know had political happenings and experiences in the past, and we'll talk about it. I'll talk to a journalist who was there when Bobby Kennedy was shot and talk about rea- re- reflections and reactions. So as much as I. I'm not crazy about what's going on in politics these days. I deeply love and respect and revere the process, and I love the past as well. So, so you know, I have a trivia question. I have uh, the current stuff. I have uh, analysis. But I also have a look back in history, which, again, as, as people say, you know, if you, you ignore the past at your own peril, and I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned uh, from politics of the past. Most definitely. Well, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to my um, partner, Tim Shiflett, and he's going to ask you some more questions about your Your partner in crime? Yes. Oh, yes. I'm a partner in crime, all right. That's right. Uh, Mr. Rudin, good gracious. I'm one of those guys that uh, lives in the commuter county, which means I travel a good ways to work and back in another place. And driving home in the afternoon over the years, of course, there was talk of the nation that I could listen to. There was Neil Conan, Ira Plato on Friday with Science Friday. And then here comes Ken Rudin with his political junkie segment. Uh, it was something I couldn't wait for every week. And I just wanted you to know that you kept me and a lot of guys like me company over the years in our cars. And we appreciate it. Well, I appreciate uh, hearing that, too, because as much as I know I loved it, I heard from a lot of people like you who loved it as well, and and that uh, rewards me more than I can say. Yeah. And by the way, my button collection numbers like 800. You have 70,000. How have you managed to acquire such a massive amount of political buttons? What's the chief way you acquire? Well, once upon a time... There was a, you used to go into campaign headquarters and fill your pockets with buttons. You know, oh, you just, yeah. You know, you say, <laughs> and, of course, that's back in the day when campaigns made, you know, made its own buttons. Now almost everything is done by people, you know, ideologues and advocates online. So mm-hmm. most of my Trump and Hillary buttons I bought. When I was at the Democratic and Republican conventions, I bought a lot. Now, of course, you, 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 you try to sweet-talk people to giving you, like, for like, in other words, there were a lot of delegates from New Mexico or Idaho or whatever state they were from, and they had their own state buttons. And, of course, you know, you say, oh, please, I must have one. I must have one, you know. You know? <laughs> so, so I, but, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't collect one, anything in particular. I specialize in governor, senator, and, and congress, but I love presidential stuff. My oldest ones are from the McKinley campaign in 1896. Um, mm. But uh, and you say you have eight hundred. I bet you you have fifty that I've never seen before. That's what's so great about collecting, and that's what's wow. so great about collecting different parts of the country. Yeah. There's such great stuff. Now, are you a, are you from Georgia? 
I am a mildest button goes back to the Coolidge uh, election. Uh, but I mean, uh, where, where are you from? Where are you? Are you, were you I born and raised in Georgia? Northwest Georgia, Northwest Georgia, about forty-five minutes south of Chattanooga. Okay, so yeah, so I mean, southern, I mean, southern stuff is has always been the toughest to get because I don't know why it is, but every now and then I'll come up with a, like a, you know, a, a Eugene Talmadge button or something like that, or, 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 you know, some great pin from the South. And I'll say, boy, my day was made until I see another button. I want the next day. It's, it's, ins- it's insatiable, that hunger. It's frightening. Wow. <laughs> so end um, of the political scene. The Trump approval rating has bumped up just a bit lately, and the credit for that has been given to the GOP tax bill passing, and his approval has gone up among the base. Will that tax bill passing be something of a game changer for the Republicans as they approach the midterms and run on it? No, a game changer, no. Will they run on it? Yes, and they should run on it because basically they don't have much else to run on. I mean, obviously the, mm-hmm. the, the attempt to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, uh, failed. Uh, they couldn't even get their own Republicans in line uh, with John McCain, Lisa Murkowski, and, and, and Susan Collins. Uh, the tax bill, look, I don't think it's going to be the panacea everybody thinks. Uh, all the talk about all how the middle class will benefit. I think, do I think that the majority of middle class citizens will benefit? I do. Do I think that the rich will overwhelmingly benefit? I absolutely do. Do I think that corporations will overwhelmingly uh, uh, benefit? I absolutely do. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, but I think they have to sell it as a middle class tax cut. Now, the problem is that there are Republican members of Congress in New York, New Jersey, and California, high uh, states with high property taxes. Republicans, I think, are going to pay the price. For, the, for that passage, because because people will have to pay more. They'll be le- they'll be less able to write off state and local taxes. They'll be less able to write off property taxes. And so I think there are a bunch of Republicans in those states, Republican incumbents, that could uh, find their seats in jeopardy because of the tax bill. But I think the Republicans are going to hope to run on it. They certainly can't run on this Devin Nunes memo, which it seems like, <laughs> my God, it, it's just it's it's. The thought, the thought that you have members of Congress, you had Paul, Gos- Paul Gosar of Arizona, who said that he wants to try members of the FBI for treason. I mean, this is, the, I, mean, I, I mean, you always talk about Joe McCarthy and things that went on in the 1950s. But, and even you think of Richard Nixon, who had his war with the press and everything like that. But I don't remember Nixon saying these things about the FBI and the intelligence agencies and his own Justice Department calling them failures and corrupt and, and in some ways treasonous. It's, you know, I've been doing this politics stuff for many, many years, and I've never seen a part where there's such a divide between mm-hmm. the president of the United States and the intelligence agencies that are sworn well, to protect this country. Yeah, um, and and you just segue right into my next thought. You and I, of course, um, our, our our other fellow on here is 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 a mere youngster. You and I were adults during the uh, Watergate era, and we saw what went on. And people keep wanting to throw that word around, but I believe that what we are witnessing at present is just beginning to fly past the scope of anything that it's like we have a hundred Gordon Liddy's now uh, it, it just boggles the mind don't you believe that this situation has the potential to be even worse as far as say a constitutional crisis than well, Watergate ever was I will never defend uh, the Nixon administration's actions in trying to uh, to get at you know through through Daniel Ellsberg that Daniel Ellsberg the um, uh, trying to break into his psychiatrist's office to get damaging mm-hmm. information on him trying to break into mm-hmm. the Democratic National Convent- Committee to get damaging information on the Democrats and and the front runner Ed Muskie my goodness Ed Muskie of all people but the fact fact is as despicable as that was. 
The thought of colluding, and I know the president says over and over again, there's no collusion, no collusion. The fact that there's, it seems to be evidence of collusion with a foreign power, with Russia, and, and the fact that Eric Trump and, and Donald Jr. and Paul Manafort and others met with Russians who said they had dirty information about Hillary Clinton, not only colluding with Russia, but then trying to obstruct justice to block the FBI, like firing James Comey, for example, block the FBI from investigating it. That is something I don't think we've ever seen in this country. And what startles me is that there's still anywhere between 35 to 40 percent of the country who says, you know, right on, uh, Donald Trump, you're, what you're doing is correct. This is a corruption in our intelligence agency that's been going on too long. And that is just mind boggling to me. And I don't say that as a Democrat because I'm not a Democrat. I don't say that as a liberal because I'm not a liberal. I'm somebody who loves politics but don't like the way that this kind of politics is being being dealt with and it, it's it, to me it frightens me and it and i when when somebody says that the media the press is the the enemy of the american people i'm not going to com- compare uh trump with joseph stalin but it sounds stalinesque it sounds mm-hmm. certainly sounds authoritarian and it does frighten me it does yes and looking ahead to the midterms i worked in my first let me get my age away a little bit i worked in my first election headquarters in 1968 and in all those years of course i have personally witnessed uh at the ground level at the grassroots level democratic voters go through the of emotions but i have never seen democratic voters as angry as they are right now number one have, would you agree with that? And number two, is that a good thing for Democratic voters to be headed into the midterms? Answer that question again. Answer that question again. Is it, what about the Democrats? Do, do, do I think that they're angry? Is that what you're asking me? Yes. Have you ever seen them as angry as no. they appear to be now? Well, you know something, yes and no, because because as angry as they were going to 1974, for example, the Watergate elections, the, mm-hmm. <laughs> the problem with the Democrats is that they don't seem to be on the same page. Look what happened with the government shutdown, that, that thing that really lasted all of three days. Mm-hmm. But you had a bunch of Democrats like Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Cory Booker and people like that who said, you know, we, we're not going to con- – we're not going to compromise at all until the dreamers are protected from deportation. And then you had other Democrats like Claire McCaskill and, and Joe Manchin and others in other uh, Democrats running for reelection in red states who said, let's compromise because we want to shut down the government. I don't think the Democrats are on the same page of how to deal with Trump. But in answer to your question about Democratic voters, I do see them angry, and we did see evidence of that in Virginia, where they, where the Democrats did far mm-hmm. better than anybody expected in the special mm-hmm. elections uh, in 2017, where even though the Republicans won most of the seats, like for the uh, Tom Price seat in Georgia, the Democrats did far better than expected. And by the way, if you want proof that I'm a true political junkie, you said the first time you were in a campaign headquarters, it was 1968. I'm saying this mm-hmm. off the top of my head. In Georgia in 1968, Herman Talmadge defeated Republican Earl Patton for re-election. And, <laughs> so you could give me a year, and I'll tell you what happened in Georgia politics. That's how much mm-hmm. I love politics. Mm-hmm. And for me to be sad about what's going on is, is just yeah. – I, I don't recognize what's happened because I've loved politics for so long. It, it was actually a tough year for us that year, Mr. Rudin. There were a grand total of three Democratic campaign headquarters in the whole state in 1968. One of them was in Rome, the one that I worked in, and one of the others was, was, was over at the University of Georgia. Hubert Humphrey finished third that right. year in this right. state. It, 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 it was, it was a first, tough right? year. It was it was a tough year for Democrats, and we we've had some tough ones since. Um, and what's so funny about that? What's so funny about that is that until Mac Mattingly, I guess in 1980, you've never had a Republican senator there. Democrats always won everything. It was always right, Democrats not, in the Senate. N- not since Reconstruction, right? Uh, exactly. Has that ever happened? The first big name Republican of that era, as a matter of fact. 
was Bo Callaway. Yep, um, yep. Just to show you how far back it goes. But uh, now I want to ask you one more question about the midterms and one follow-up question, then I'm going to throw it back to David to close the segment out. Um, looking at the other side, there was a little state Senate special election up in Wisconsin a couple of weeks ago as a Republican seat that Donald Trump had won by double digits. And the Democrat won the special election by double digits, which prompted Governor Walker to say Republicans in this country really need to be concerned right now. Is he right that oh, absolutely. way he's performing? Oh. Oh, absolutely. He's definitely right. If if there is a wave, and you, look, look, if we couldn't predict Trump versus Clinton on the day of the election, if we couldn't predict the Alabama Senate race between, uh, uh-huh. you know, uh, uh, you know uh, those, those two guys, uh, Roy Moore and uh, and uh, um, Doug Jones, the Doug. day of the election, I'm not going to predict something that's going to happen in February, uh, next November. But having said that, there is a definitely an enthusiasm, as you mentioned earlier, enthusiasm among Democrats. There is a depression among Republicans. And if you still have a president who's under 40 percent in the polls, if you still have them railing about FBI corruption, if you still have Robert Mueller uncovering more things about possible collusion, about more possible obstruction of justice, uh, then the stock market could go up to a million. And, 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 and voters are going to say this something is wrong here. But. But again, I don't know. Should the Republicans be nervous? Yes. I don't. I don't know if the Democrats will win control of the House. It'll be tougher in the Senate. But should the Republicans be concerned? I agree with Scott Walker. Yes, they should be. Mm-hmm. One more quick question, just a personal thing. How many times did I hear the words? And if you get the answer correct, you'll get a political junkie T-shirt in the mail. Have you any idea how many? political junkie t-shirts were given away well we did this for seven years uh, on talk mm-hmm. of the nation and we gave away one every week we did the show so just to do like 50 some odd times seven so we gave a bunch now because i'm on my own now you get a free bu- political junkie button i can't afford to give out free t-shirts but uh, <laughs> but i do sell political junkie t-shirts but that's not the same thing of course yep yep a lot of people said i'll do anything for that t-shirt but you know, you just got to get the right answer. Simple as, <laughs> simple as that. And with that, I'm going to send it back to David. David? All right. Well, Ken, I'm just going to ask you one question about current politics because Tim covered so many things. And that would be a piece that you wrote for the USA Today in mid-January, and it's still on your um, blog, Political Junkie. Uh, people want to go there, krpoliticaljunkie.com, and read it. And it's about Mitt Romney and not being the uh, never-Trump savior. A few things here. One, do you think that he can actually win the Utah Senate seat since he is seen as never-Trump never in the GOP primary? And then if he gets there, mm-hmm. why do you think he wouldn't be successful in being the inside the Republican Party opposition to Donald Trump? Well, let me answer them in different kinds of order. First of all, do I think he will win? Yes, I do. He's going to announce his decision on February 15th. Uh, I say yes, he does run. Um, already there are a lot of Republicans making way for him. Evan McMullen, who ran a strong third as an independent in 2016 for president, is backing Romney. Uh, Romney is a Mormon in a heavily Mormon state. For, for people who say he has no business running in Utah because he doesn't live in Utah, well, just talk to Hillary Clinton before she moved to New York. So, so I don't buy that argument at all. But having said that, there's something about Mitt Romney. Yes, he is a, 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 an anti-Trump Republican. He said some brutal things about Trump uh, during the campaign that Trump, of course, Trump will never forgive or forget anything. But Utah, of all the states, when you think of all those Rocky Mountain states that are so pro-Trump or were so pro-Trump, Utah was not one of them. Trump got under 50 percent in 2016 because because his because unlike the 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 so-called evangelical community the mormon community gets disgusted when you hear about what we heard on the access hollywood tape or the stormy daniel stuff the evangelicals say oh that's you know trump being trump which is mind-boggling but but let's get past that for a second the mormon community says no that's not good for us trump is not popular in utah the thing about mitt romney though is that 
he he has there are different Mitt Romneys. We saw him when he was governor of Massachusetts. He pushed through this health care bill that was almost like the the model for Obamacare. He can be he has a, a decent streak on him and streak on him that he'll uh, ups, he'll be angry with the excesses in partisan politics. But then when he felt that Rick Santorum was gaining on him in 2012, he started sounding much more conservative than he really believed in. He was disavowing previous statements, and he kind of groveled, I thought, uh, in, an, in, a, in an opportunity, he thought, to become Trump's secretary of state. Now, you know, all the terrible things he said about Trump disappeared when he was considered as a possible secretary of state. Uh, so, so he has – he can – pander he can switch but all in all i do think he's a, a decent guy and plus the fact his niece is the chair of the republican national committee ronna ronna romney uh, mcdaniel is her, his niece so i don't think he's going to be an anti-trump republican but he could be um uh, a, a, like a jeff flake of arizona or a or a, a bob corker of tennessee somebody who will be independent enough to speak his mind and that's probably the best we can hope for at this point Mm-hmm. Yes, very thorough analysis. Well, Ken, we want to thank you for coming on. Uh, if you want to tell the listeners one more time where they can read or listen to you, take that chance. Okay, just go to krpoliticaljunkie.com, and, and all the stuff is there, including you could win free buttons, and that is very important. <laughs> yes. All right. Thanks again, uh, Ken Rudin, coming on the Kudzu Vine. I love to be. I love being here. And Tim, when you mentioned Bo Calloway, reminds me of that '66 election against Lester Maddox. We'll talk about that next yep. time. Oh yeah. Yes, we'd love <laughs> Thanks, that. Guys. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Yes. All right. Uh, great guest. And I never want to be presumptuous and ask the put them on the spot sometimes about being on again. But I, I Tim, I hope I speak for you. I'd love to have Ken on. In the future, and we'll talk more about more current politics, but maybe throwing some history in, tying things together. But we won't do as much uh, about since, of course, first time on we covered that. Um, well, David, well, Tim, we got David. Nine. Let me let, go ahead. Let, let me let me okay. add one thing to that. Ken Rudin, having listened to him so many times, you talk about a historian of politics. That guy knows it. We did not even scratch the surface of all that that man knows about politics. He, he, like he mentioned the Bo Calloway Lester Maddox race in 66, and it just brought back all kind of vivid memories for me. And here's a guy who's not from Georgia was going, you know, ready to discuss it. Uh, that's how good this man is. That's, that's all I want to say. Oh, you could tell there's a, a lot of mm-hmm. um, intellectual curiosity and depth of knowledge there. Well, Tim, we got about eight minutes now. I don't once again. Okay. I don't think we're getting through all the states, and it is Super Bowl Sunday, and we're not going to talk uh, Patriots Eagles, but let's talk about something that is political in our state that involves the Super Bowl, and that would be one of the Republican contenders for Governor Clay Tippins, probably lesser known than some of the candidates. He's doing a quarter million dollar of an ad buy today. He's actually not going to put the money in the Atlanta market because, of course. I guess on the Super Bowl, a quarter million probably buy you about half an ad. But um, he's doing mm-hmm. a 60-second ad, which is a double. He's going to put it in the Albany, Columbus, and Macon media markets. And then he's going to put the ad on Monday in the Atlanta media market, obviously not on the Super Bowl. Um, but then my question is, one, in a typical Super Bowl, how valuable is this? But then given that this seems to be a game that is actually generating maybe less interest just because uh, people don't see it as competitive as some of the more recent Super Bowls. And thirdly, the Republican base has been told to sour on the NFL, and and so therefore you're probably – the viewership is going to be more nonpartisan and maybe Democratic-leading, certainly not the hardcore Republican base, which has probably been told, you know, oh, they kneeled, even if the Eagles and the Patriots never kneeled. Somebody kneeled involved in the NFL. So they may not be as likely to watch a non-competitive game. So my question, getting around to it, is this a good buy, a good ad idea for Ken Tippins? Probably is. Uh, number one is jumping the gun. 
Yeah, number one, he's jumping the gun on everyone else. I believe he's the first one of the of the candidates to get come out with TV ads. Uh, no, and and he needs to do that, David, because he is facing some far better known and well funded uh, people. Not just one, but several. So he's going to have to, if not break out of the pack, he is at least going to have to get into the conversation and get into the pack a little bit because I would imagine the average voter has no idea who he even is. Um, Secondly, even if all those things you said about the Super Bowl are true, and, 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 and one of them, I believe this game will be very competitive, but but that's beside the point. But but another thing, it's still the most watched thing on television in, in, all year. This is it. So this would be the time for him to hit. Um, so I think it's a good idea that he's doing it. Now, I have a couple of questions. Number one, if he's, of, you know, $250,000 is nothing to sneeze at. So has this guy got a bankroll? Uh, that's the kind of money that the top-tier candidates spend on advertising, you know, for a day or two. Uh, number two, why is he targeting uh, Macon South? And, and, and not just Macon South, but Macon and South. West, why just that area for this Super Bowl ad buy? Um, what, what, why do you, what, what do you think is going on there? Well, I guess he is going to get more impact for his dollar outside the Atlanta markets. Now, if he, uh-huh. if he threw out Columbus, I believe the Albany market and the Macon market are much more Georgia-centric. But, of course, when you do Columbus, you're going over the Alabama border, which does you no good. Um, right, and so that that doesn't go with that thing. I will say this: even though the Super Bowl is expensive, and it may end up having a lot of non-Republican voters watching, uh, certainly primary voters, um, it, it is still something that people are going to watch the commercials um, mm-hmm. because one, we've been conditioned. Oh, Super Bowl commercials are interesting, more interesting than some of the plays. Sometimes that's true, sometimes mm-hmm. it's not, but. So many times now we DVR things and we just fast forward every commercial. So therefore, the Super Bowl people aren't live sporting events in general are. One thing we are going to be is going to be interesting. I think uh, because the game, I, once again, the narrative is, Tim, your your pick aside that it's not going to be that competitive. And two, because you're going to have some folks that want to stand strong. Uh, you, this may be one of the least watched Super Bowls um, in recent history. Um, so therefore, that's going to be interesting to see. And if Ken Tippins loses some of his voters or his viewers in this case, that that could impact um, Clay. And I keep saying it wrong, so I kept saying our Clay Tippins. Um, but but it is a move he needs to make because he's not as well known, certainly right. as Casey Cagle or some other right. candidates. So and, and one last right. thing, he can do some polling in Albany. He can do some polling around the Bacon area. He can do some polling around Columbus. He can see if his numbers moved. Do a small poll in those areas before, do a small poll after, but Tuesday, put it in the field, maybe Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, put it in the field, see if it moved the needle. Because a lot of times you have to know, mm. is what you're doing effective to know if you want to do more? Well, look, look, don't you think he's throwing out these ads with the end game of being three? And by that I mean – you know you've got Kemp. You know you've got Cagle. Everyone is jockeying for position to be the third name on that list. A three-way race. Yeah, sir. So he's looking to be the then... third name. He needs to some. He needs to break out somehow and to get into that third slot. And he's going to be facing, you know, some some other elected officials even for that. So I, I, I don't see a downside to this, but I keep wondering about his bankroll. Do you think he's betting the whole wad on this? Is it, if I'm not mistaken, isn't he going to be a little bit of a self-funder? 
I mean, nobody's fully self-funded in these kind of races. Well, I don't. But I believe he's more self-funded I, than some. I, I don't know about that, and that would explain things if he can self-fund something like this because, yeah. uh, I mean, $250,000 for an unknown Politico running statewide is, is, is a tidy sum of money to spend on a single ad. So, yeah. Yeah, it definitely is. And we'll see. And, and um, I think it is a positive bio piece. And maybe that's what he's thinking. If Casey Cagle gets drugged down by Brian Kemp and possibly Michael Williams into negative, right. they may not see him as a target. He can be the positive alternative uh, that's not go, you know going back and forth. Right. Yeah. There's some value in that spot. Um, well, um, thanks for Ken Rudin coming on the show tonight. Uh, going a little early, and so hope bear with us. The next week we'll be on our regular 7 o'clock time. Till then, it's been the Cudsey Vine. Good evening, sir. See you later. We are the-